Welcome to Let's Finally Watch This, a podcast for casual movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. I'm your host, Nick Hayden. And I'm your other host, Timothy Deal. And we're zooming into 1983. We do this a lot on here. Oh, it's it major time lash. 1983. This is the year I was born. Oh, this is the year I was. I turned three. I was. <laughs> I was born in the year of the Jedi. <laughs> nice, nice. That's how, as a movie, it's the fan, year I everything a, changed. <laughs> I always associate that with uh, Return of the Jedi. So, see, I was. Do- I was born in the year of the Empire Striking Back. Uh, so. Okay, so that, yeah. <laughs> and that's how I remember what it was. That's just sort of how you date things back when you're an '80s kid. It's which yep. Star Wars movie came out? <laughs> which were you closest to? Yes, yeah, exactly. Really, for me, it was Jedi. <laughs> So anyways, we're not watching a Star Wars movie this time, though it has some things to do with space. That's true. So we are, this episode, talking about The Right Stuff. A movie title that I always hear Weird Al in my head, singing about Oreos. Yeah, exactly. The White Stuff. <laughs> the White Stuff. But there, there's no Oreos in this movie, just, nope. just astronauts. Just a lot of astronauts. Yep. And test pilots. That's right. But before we get to the movie itself, let's recap briefly what was going on in the 80s film-wise. We, we talked about that last season, so give us some of the highlights. So there are three big things we talked about last season when we talked about 1982. The first was the ending of the new Hollywood era due to, well, Spielberg and Lucas. They basically said, hey, you know what? People might like normal adventurous movies. Yes. It was the rev- <laughs> and they did. <laughs> they did. They revolutionized the blockbuster and uh, and that really took off. Also, there were several box office failures of some director-driven projects. And with something like a theoretical concept like new Hollywood era... You're going to have some questions about when it technically ended. Um, Some people would point to the failures of like Heaven's Gate in 1981. Which we mentioned last season. Yep. Yep. And um, one of Coppola's failures in 1982. But there's some movies that are still, if you look up New Hollywood on Wikipedia, they still list some from 1983. Well, they they overlap because nothing's quite as nice as... Yeah. And uh, one of the movies that came out this year that they don't list, I fe- feel like kind of qualifies for New Hollywood is Scarface. Okay. Yeah. Which is a notably violent gangster movie, yeah. remake of an earlier gangster movie. But And if you look at the top 10 grossing films in 1984, that is definitely turned a page at that point. Like, because all those are all blockbuster movies that are pretty well known. They had definitely changed in terms of. It was of- like. You know that that Star Wars Jaws and Ann Jones thing. Let's let's do that. Yeah, <laughs> by 1984, they had definitely figured out we're working on how to make movies that were going to attract a popular wide audience. Yeah. We also talked last season when we were talking about the 80s. We talked about new technologies and media that were developing at this time, which I guess in some ways Lucas pushed that too. Yes, to he, some of it at least. He was developing THX sound, which we talked about. Yep. There was some very early CG going on. I, mean, in movies. I listen to podcast. I mean, do them in this last season. I'm listening to podcasts about how basically he w- did THX sound in theaters partly just because he wouldn't be able to hear. Star Wars. Yeah, he wanted to hear Return of the Jedi. I think especially that one, yeah. It was during the lead-up to that movie that he was like, one people, like, the the sound was way too muddied and because people had just been focused on the picture for so long yeah. and people had just forgotten and like, no, we, we, we want to be able to hear John Williams' score and all these yeah. cool sound effects we're yeah. doing. Other technologies from the 80s that were in development, videotape, we're not quite there yet, but it's it's in the in the background. We also talked about music videos and cable TV, more because it related to Blade Runner yes. than to actual movie <laughs> stories. But 
And we also touched on the uniqueness of 80s movies due to uh, we were just reeling from the cultural revolutions of the 60s and 70s, seeking stability from traditional values, more that was on the rise, both in politics and I think in pop culture, but also embracing the promise of new technologies. Which is going everywhere. So you start getting all kinds of weird combinations in these 80s movies of technology and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And wanting to explore new new frontiers, but yet at the same time wanted to feel more that good old family value stuff. But then there's some other things that we didn't mention. For instance, the exhibition of yeah. movies is changing. That's right. Well, slowly. I wanted to make sure we touched on this because we talked some about the movie exhibition movie theaters early on this season. The palaces, the movie palaces. The movie palaces, yes. Mm-hmm. We haven't touched on it in a while, mainly because there's not, hasn't been a whole lot of big change from like the single screen palaces. Mm-hmm. There were a few theaters that experimented with having two screens as early as 1915, but they were not as common and they tended to show the same movie. The first three-screen theater was created in June 1967 in, in Boston. Which is way later than I would have guessed, actually. Yeah, and it was during the 60s that some theaters started experimenting more with having, for a while, even when you had the few number of theaters who had two screens, they would often just show the same movie. Yeah. But then later, they in like the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, some theaters, especially AMC okay. chains, started experimenting with they were like, oh, if we have different movies at different start times, then you can have the same staff, the man, the concession stand, and the ticket booth. And it's just, it's just fun. you know, it's always funny the thing that takes us for a long time to try, and then afterwards we're like, yeah, why didn't we just do that the whole time? <laughs> yeah, it's true. By the time we get to this decade, 1981, still only 10% of America's 16,712 movie theaters had more than one screen. And according to Wikipedia, of that 10%, 80% of those only had two screens. Well, I mean, all the small town theaters are all basically one screeners. Yeah. I mean, we have two here, but I don't know if that when that started. Yeah. And Garrett, they've had one screen basically until they closed up shop yeah. a few years ago. Yeah. So we're not quite yet to the later, pretty soon here in the 80s, we're going to have the an explosion of multiplexes. and But we'll talk more about that next time. It seems time. like everything got big in the late 80s. You got the malls, you got the multiplexes. Everything's like, let's do a million of things. Right, yeah. Actually, in 1981, which we were just talking about, the largest theater in the United States had seven screens. Okay. According to uh, Wikipedia, they pulled some info from the Motion Picture Almanac. But in 1982, so a year before this, the 14-screen Cineplex in the Beverly Center Mall in West Hollywood, California, became the country's largest upon opening. It's so funny. 14 was the largest in Hollywood. And nowadays, it's just like, Probably. if you're a medium-sized town, you'll have eight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Aub- Back, I like how many Auburn, did Auburn have? Auburn has eight. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll talk more about that as that grew uh, more in the next couple episodes. But the right stuff is also a historical drama. And we've watched one or two of these, but it's a good time to kind of talk about a thumbnail sketch of the historical drama. Yeah, I, I would love to have gone more in detail of what the picture of historical dramas was here in the 80s, but I didn't have time to really, I would have had to find like a scholarly book yeah. that was went real in depth of that, which I didn't have access to. So but I'll just note that it's a very important genre of film. Dramatized historical fiction goes back at least as far as Edwin S. Porter's 1903 adaptation of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Which is very early in film history. Yeah, but Scott Scholars would probably consider the first true American historical film, meaning one that focuses on real historical figures and events and not just fictional characters in a historical setting. Okay, yeah. Um, that's kind of differentiate those two from Uncle Tom's Cabin. There's characters in a fiction. It's historical fiction, yeah. not history. Yeah. 
But most scholars would consider the first true one that actually focused on figures, events, to be D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation in 1915. I feel like we need to watch this one. I know you have seen it, but I feel like I need to see it. Actually, I have not. Oh, I thought that was one you've seen. Okay. No, I've seen another of Griffith's films that came after it. The one, um, because Birth of a Nation, even when it came out, had a reputation for being pretty racist. Oh, okay. Because it celebrates the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, okay. (laughs) Very very unfortunate things. It's still a cinematic... It's a milestone. It innovated a lot of things. But yeah, it has some very problematic elements. And as kind of a response to the backlash, Griffith then did a film called Intolerance, okay. um, which I have seen that one. Oh, okay. So okay. that's that's probably what you're thinking of. The Russian filmmaker Sergei Eisenstein would expand on Griffith's cinematic innovations of history storytelling with his films, Battleship Potemkin in 1925 and October in 1927. And these are both films that depicted real events from Russian history and that kind of expanded on them to the same more artistic things. Mm-hmm. Over time, there are several subgenres of historical films that emerged, and I kind of pulled this off of a website called filmreference.com. Just some of these different types, historical epics, that can include Kabiria from 1914. We talked about that from yep. being an Italian film. The Ten Commandments. Both versions. Both versions. Yep. Or even Lawrence of Arabia. Which was our foray into it last season. That's right. Again, the epics being like big, wide, sweeping scopes mm. of filmmaking. Lots of characters, lots of... Yeah. Yeah. Lots of uh, armies, all that kind of yeah. stuff. War films, which I guess some of these genres tend to overlap yeah, sometimes. Yeah, they, they bleed into each other. Yeah, but war films focusing on a specific time of war that can include All Quiet on the Western Front from 1930. Or the brand new one. Or the brand new one. There was one like last year. Oh, there was a, a remake. That's I right. believe so, yeah. I think you're right. Also, Apocalypse Now from 1979, Saving Private Ryan, 1998. You can think of Lots, a lot of war of films, yep. probably. Biographical films, Alexander Hamilton is one that was done back in 1931. Some other more famous ones, Patton from 1970, or Spielberg's Lincoln from 2012. Even Lawrence of Arabia had some elements of biopic where yeah. you're focusing on a specific individual studying mm-hmm. that character, an actual historical person. It's kind of a war film, historical epic, and biopic. Yeah, it kind of <laughs> is. Yeah. Topical films, uh, they didn't list this one, but I thought topical films being the idea that they were on a specific subject matter of and history. And kind of this, this episode, or the right stuff is kind of space race. Yeah, space race. It covers several years worth. Um, another example from last season, Gangs of New York. Yes. From 2002, it covered a very specific geographical area, you know, gang violence that was happening in New York mm-hmm. at a specific time. Uh, the last topic that they mentioned, meta-historical. According to the film reference, this offers embedded or explicit critiques of the way history is conventionally represented. And an example of this is JFK from 1991. Okay. Which, from what I under- my understanding, it included a lot of newsreel stuff, but sometimes you'd have characters that would shed doubt on the way it was, things were officially okay. reported. Okay. That kind of thing. I gotcha. Okay. So I don't know how common that is, but... Either way to process it. Yeah, yeah. So that's, again, that's sort of a thumbnail sketch. I wish I could say more specifics on what the genre really looked like in 1983. But even like, if you think like even Westerns are technically historical film in a way. It's, in a way. It's more a historical fiction rather than... Depends on which one. I mean, some of them have more more history attached to it than others. That's true. Some are specific about Jesse James or yeah. actual characters and other ones like... Here's this guy named Shane. And- yeah, Shane. <laughs> yeah, Shane. Shane, come back, Shane. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, but in 1983, there's some other films coming out. What are, what's kind of on the landscape in 1983? 
Well, the top grossing film of the year, no surprise, is Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi. I've heard of that one. Me too. It set a new domestic opening weekend of $23 million, including a per theater average that would last when adjusted for inflation for 36 years until Avengers Endgame in that's, 2019. That's a record. I mean, that's crazy. Endgame had like 10 years of buildup for it. That's true. Like, I guess Return of the Jedi had six years of buildup. <laughs> that's, that's, it did. I mean, and it was Star Wars. It was Star Wars was brand new. Brand like, new, yeah. yeah. Uh, we can only imagine what that was like. <laughs> Those yes. of us who were who were just uh, I just remember really going back and seeing it with uh, when they did all the re- you know the remake stuff in like '97 or six oh, or yeah. whatever. Yeah, it's like, whoa, that was the big fun. screen. Yeah. yeah, that was cool. The Oscar winners for this year: Best Picture went to Terms of Endearment, Best Director went to James L. Brooks for Terms of Endearment, and Best Actress went to Shirley MacLaine for the same movie, Terms of Endearment. So obviously it was that, a, that was an Oscar darling that year. It was an Oscar darling that year, and it was one of our nominations for this week's episode. It's kind of a, a family dramedy, basically, mm. is the impression I got from it. But this one, the right stuff was just a little bit more unique for the year. Yeah. Best actor this year went to Robert Duvall for Tender Mercies, which I have seen. It's a, it's a good movie. It's very redemptive. It's It feels to me like the kind of movie that a lot of faith-based movies wants to be. Okay. If they're going for a really realistic kind of redemptive real life story, mm-hmm. but they sometimes they don't quite hit the quite the same poignancy. Okay, but it's been a while, so I don't remember much details about it beyond that. Our other nominations for this week's episode, we mentioned Terms of Endearment. The other one was Risky Business, which for a while was going to be the movie yeah. we watched because I think it might be the more famous one for in terms of Hollywood history. It was the movie that gave Tom Cruise his breakout role. It's a teen romantic comedy. But since we had several romantic comedies things coming up right after this, I was like, Nick, I feel like we need something mm-hmm. a little different. To bounce yeah. out. And we hadn't done something, this sort of epic thing, this seasonal thing. Not really. No, not, not in this sense. Not in this, yeah. The right stuff does feel unique for this season and even compared to last season. Yes, in I would agree with that. So I think I think we made the right choice. Our audience nominations for this one, we had two. Nathan had uh, nominated a movie called War Games, which I think might be the first movie about computer hacking. Okay. It's uh, Matthew Broderick accidentally hacks the U.S. government and it okay. almost starts a apocalypse. Or okay. So I, I don't know a whole lot about it. And then Yintel was a film that my mother actually nominated. I guess it stars Barbara Streisand. Okay, yeah, I, I've heard this one. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a movie about, or it's a musical regarding the character's Jewish heritage. Okay. I don't have the details in front of me right now. Sorry, Mom, but uh, go <laughs> if, you, if you're curious, go read more info about it. It was interesting. It just wasn't quite as iconic enough for this season. As for other notable events this year, I just noted this because I like noting interesting animation stuff. On March 11th was the release of the short Winnie the Pooh and a Day for Eeyore. I have a soft spot for Winnie the Pooh, yes. so there's that. Wikipedia notes that more films received an R rating in this year, 1983, than any other prior year. They don't provide a link to collaborate that, so that might be accurate. Um, that would be kind of weird, but you know the 70s were full of... yeah. The new Hollywood stuff was more explicit, but at the same time, they also had more X-rated movies. Okay, so maybe it had come down to R ratings. Yeah. Could be. It could be, like the because R ratings were still more profitable, and but maybe this is the turning point where X-rated and then NC-17 were just not going to be turn a profit sort of thing. Yeah. 
So it's possible. This year also marks the film debuts of Rowan Atkinson, Matthew Broderick, Jim Carrey, John Goodman, Kelsey Grammer, Nicole Kidman, Rick Moranis, Kiefer Sutherland, and many more. So See, those are the ones I so you can tell when I hit the age or like or the the years were like, oh, I know these actors. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you want to see the full list of that, check out 1983 in film on Wikipedia. So, Tim, The Right Stuff, what is this movie? What's it about besides just space? Space. This is a movie directed by Philip Kaufman. Cast includes Sam Shepard, Dennis Quaid, Ed Harris, Scott Glenn, and Barbara Hershey. This is a historical drama about the early NASA space program, and it was adapted from a 1979 book of the same name by Tom Wolfe. The movie begins in 1947 at the Southern California Desert Airfield, where several test pilots have died trying to break the sound barrier. War hero Captain Chuck Yeager agrees to give it a try at no additional charge, in addition to his regular salary, and despite a harrowing flight, safely succeeds in breaking Mach 1. Six years later, new test pilots, including Gordon Cooper and Virgil Gus Grisham, continue to come to the base with the aims of breaking new speed barriers and earning glory, despite their wives' fears of impending widowhood. The game changes in 1957 when the Soviet Union launches their Sputnik satellite, alarming the U.S. government and beginning the space race. NASA begins recruiting and testing pilots from the Edwards Air Base, along with other military heroes, including John Glenn, a Marine, and Alan Shepard from the Navy. After passing through grueling physicals, the Mercury 7 are selected and revealed to an adoring public, but they will have to persevere through many more trials, engineering setbacks, competing egos, and public pressure to prove they have the right stuff to bring America into space. So just to touch a little bit more on some of the cast, some people you may not be familiar with. Dennis Quaid is interesting. Dennis Quaid, I first became familiar with from movies like The Rookie and Frequency when he was in his 40s. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it was very interesting to see him. So He's very young here. Much younger here. So that was fun. Ed Harris, as soon as I saw him, I was like, wait, I know that guy. And he, <laughs> he's the NASA mission commander in Apollo 13, mm-hmm. another space movie. And he's also the producer, the main... The director. The director for The Truman Show. In The Truman Show, he's the director. He's not the director of The Truman Show movie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if you know, you know. But And he's he's done a bunch of stuff. But yeah. Those are the two things I was most familiar with. Barbara Hershey, I got a note, she played Chuck Yeager's wife. Okay. Uh, she would be most famous for our listeners for playing the Queen of Hearts on Once Upon a Time. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. That was way later, of course. Okay. But... There's also a bit part that we're surprised to see. <laughs> yes. Jeff Goldblum. Being very normal. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's still a little goofy. I mean, it's also the youngest I've ever seen him. Although, I looked it up. This was not his first movie. He okay. had done some other movies, actually some with this director. But as soon as we saw him, I was like, is that him? There's no mistaking those eyebrows. And <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that was that was a lot of fun. But anyway, this movie is in color. It has a screen ratio of 1.85 over 1, which is a pretty standard 16 by 9 for film. The length is 192 minutes. So that's three hours and 12 minutes. So you're going to need to strap yourself in for this one. The MPA rating is PG. It has an orchestral score by Bill Conti, composer for the Rocky movies. And he won an Oscar for Best Original Score. Although I can't say, again, this is not one where melodically it really stuck no, out to me. No, it, it might have worked really well, but it worked so well I didn't remember it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I'm not, I don't mean that backhandedly. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It blends in really well. The only pl- thing I actually remember is when they used Mars of the planets. That's true. They did use some classical yeah. compositions here and there. But that was very to be. They wanted you to notice that. Yeah, that's true. All right, Tim. So that's the movie. So who cares? Was it successful at the time? Actually, no. <laughs> this was considered a box office bomb. It uh, only grossed $21 million against a 27 to $28 million budget. Yeah, so that's not great. That's not great. And interestingly, this is the first time we've had one of these this season, I feel like. Last season, I think we had more that were like not great financially, but became popular later. Yeah, this one's pretty cri- well critically acclaimed. It is, actually. So even though it didn't do well financially, the critics loved it right out the gate. Roger Ebert named it the best film of the year, of best film of 1983. And uh, later, toward the end of the decade, would call it the second best film of the 1980s. Which is saying a lot, yeah. Saying a lot, right behind Martin Scorsese's film Raging Bull. He said, it joins a short list of recent American movies that might be called experimental epics. Movies that have an ambitious reach through time and subject matter, that spin freely for locations or special effects, but that consider each scene as intently as an art film. Which is a neat quote. Yeah, I might come back to that when we start talking about the movie. Okay, sure. His uh, co-host of his TV show, Gene Siskel, also named it the best film of 1983 and would later rank it the third best film of the 1980s behind Shoah and Raging Bull. David Anson of Newsweek said, when the right stuff takes to the skies, it can't be compared with any other movie old or new. It's simply the most thrilling flight footage ever put on film. And I'll note, in case that makes you raise an eyebrow, this is about three or four years before Top Gun came out. Okay. Pauline Kael from The New Yorker, who is known to be a prickly movie critic, said the movie has the happy, excited spirit of a fanfare, and it's astonishingly entertaining, considering what a screw-up it is. <laughs> I think Craig's purposely trying to make very compelling sentences just so people have to be like, wait, what? I gotta read the rest of this. <laughs> The film was also nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It didn't win that one, but it did win four of the awards, including Best Film Editing, Original Score, Sound, and Sound Effects Editing. The Star Wars movies had won Sound Effects Editing before, so yeah. that's why we'll forgive it for not... Uh... <laughs> I mean, they were doing the same sound effects. Yeah. yeah, and honestly, the film editing... I, I could totally say that. We'll talk more about that in a bit. And this currently has a 96% score on Rotten Tomatoes with 52 reviews. So people loved it back then. And even at the end of the decade, they were still really enjoying it. Um, did it have much uh, direct influence that you could figure out? Well, given that the movie was a financial failure, it might not have been cited as an inspiration as often. But it's hard to say that it, it couldn't have laid the groundwork because really there hadn't really been any other major Hollywood films about yeah. the NASA program or or going into outer space. I mean, we had plenty of space movies, Star Wars. But not, not historical space movies. Not historical space movies. So this was the first of its kind. So it surely laid the groundwork for films like Apollo 13 mm-hmm. in 1995, Hidden Figures in 2016, which is about the same time period, well, I believe. Yeah, the, the scene with um, John Glenn and the strap coming off his thing is at the end of Hidden Figures. Oh, okay. I mean, obviously compressed because they make it a bigger deal in this movie. Okay, okay. And then also, First Man is another example of a historical astronaut movie from 2018, which I've not seen that one. I haven't seen Hidden Figures either. Oh, really? Oh, it's pretty good. Okay. 
I will also note that National Geographic made a limited run TV series drama also based off of the Right Stuff book and the movie that premiered on Disney Plus in October of 2020. It was an eight episode series that covered from NASA's search for pilots in 1959 to Alan Shepard's flight in 1961. So kind of the middle of this movie okay, yeah. is what they covered in that eight episode series. It received mixed reviews and it was not renewed. In fact, it was even removed from Disney Plus on May 26th of this year. They just remove stuff. That's a whole different issue. Yeah, yeah. All right, so who else cares? Other people make big deal about this or not so big deal about this? Well, it's worth noting here that Tom Wolfe, who wrote the book, was not a fan of the movie, and neither was screenwriter William Goldman, who had written the first version of the script before being overruled by Kaufman, and he would just leave the project. Okay. Goldman's preference would have been to eliminate the sections about Chuck Yeager, and he said that the director's heart was with Yeager, and not only that, he felt the astronauts, rather than being heroic, were really minor leaguers, mechanical men of no particular quality, not great pilots at all, simply the product of hype. I think that's overstating it a little bit. I see where he's coming from and that in some ways Yeager feels a little He, he takes up a lot of the movie for not being an astronaut. Yeah, <laughs> for a movie about astronauts. Yeah. I see a little bit where he's coming from, but we can explore yeah. that more later. Interestingly, the Mercury 7 astronauts themselves were also not fans of the movie, criticizing its historical accuracy, especially in relationship to Gus Grissom. There's a sequence about when Grissom is shown panicking upon arriving back at Earth and wanting to get out of his capsule. And due to various circumstances, the capsule sinks after he gets out of it. And apparently in it was already well known at this point that he was never really blamed for that okay and the other astronauts were quick to defend him about it and uh it, it is kind of an odd feature that they kind of it brings up some dramatic moments for uh, gus grisham but like it's questionable whether it happened like that it happened like that but despite all that this movie was selected in 2013 for preservation in the national film registry by the library of congress for being culturally historically or aesthetically significant yes And it is included on many websites' lists of the best space astronaut movies. Just Google best astronaut movies or best space movies, and you'll find it on websites such as Variety, Time Magazine, Esquire, Collider, Time Out, Screen Rant. In some ways, it's kind of just your archetype. I mean, it's the big first one, right? Yeah. It's like the primal space movie. It's the first of its kind, for sure. On October 14th, 1947, Captain Charles Yeager shattered the sound barrier propelled man into the future and the search began for a new breed of men men who were fearless you've heard about our project sounds dangerous it's very dangerous count me in all right well then that's what other people think but that doesn't matter what do we think tim (laughs) wow wow yeah we're gonna just throw everyone under the bus (laughs) no but um do you know much about this going into it I didn't really. I mean, this wasn't a huge part of my radar until I started researching, but I must have heard of it. Sometimes it just went over my head because interestingly, my mom said that they had watched it with my sisters while they were homeschooling, but it must have been after I was not in the house anymore because I didn't have much memory of it. But the other interesting thing is I did notice we made our potential lists way back even late last year while we were still making for a season. But I kept seeing right stuff show up, and apparently it's one of former world editor-in-chief Marvin Olasky is listed as one of his top five favorite movies. Okay. So it made me pay a little bit more attention to what it was. How about yeah. you? Had you heard of it? I think I had heard of it and not much else. It, it was interesting while watching it. Some of the stuff with the wise made me think 
not that I'd seen that movie, but I'd seen something about those astronauts' wives before. Anyways, I think it was on my radar. It was just like a movie, but I couldn't have told you much more than that. But that's why I say every time. So. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, so let's hear what we thought about it initially having watched it last week. Okay. All right, fun, interesting space movie, space race movie. A lot of history that I didn't know as well as I would have liked to. A lot I would like to actually find out how accurate this is. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious about some of that stuff. But good cast. There were certain moments I felt like I didn't quite get, but there's a lot going on. There are a lot of moments that I thought were pretty good. Really interesting subplots with all the, the astronaut wives, but I'll let our wives talk more about that. But yeah, overall, I enjoyed it. What do you think, Nick? Well, yeah, I'm kind of a sucker for any sort of space movie book, and uh, and that I like history a lot more than I used to. And yeah, it was very interesting um, kind of repetitions of scenes and dialogue. The structured really well. It was fun to see both movies that showed sort of the um, all the warts of people while simultaneously having a through line that you can cheer for. Mm. I thought that was a, a really fun combination. So I, yeah, I enjoyed it. It's hard to not like, uh, was it Alan Shepard? The the blonde guy. The first one who went up or the one who had the, the wife who stuttered? The one who had the wife who stuttered. That was John Glenn. John Glenn. Oh, okay. Hard to dislike him. He had a really noble portrayal. And it's hard to like any of the portrayals of the media <laughs> in this movie. They were disgusting. Yeah, I would like to know also how true this is to life. It was interesting to see the wives point of view points of view also to see how much their husbands had to go through and then seemed very little reward they got for any of it but they got to meet jackie or at least one of them did (laughs) one of them yeah (laughs) it was neat too to see them come together as a team you know they had their differences and some were more noble than others but in the end, they were all very supportive of each other, which was neat. And again, I'd like to know how true this is to the real story. But it makes for good TV. <laughs> or movies. <laughs> and so that's what we thought. And I think our thoughts, as usual, have coalesced to a certain bit after a week. A week. What do you think stuck with us most? Obviously, this is a really good retelling of, or compelling retelling of the space race. Yeah. I kind of want to hear more of your opinion first before I okay. try to explore this one. Well, like most good history movie, historical movies, it makes me want to go read the book, which I have not. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and it was interesting. I did not expect them to start as far back as they did with breaking the sound barrier. It brought this idea of this, everyone's exploring new territory, everything, you know, and they're bringing new people together, trying to get them to work as a team. Um, and the scenes just, like I think even said last week, but I would agree with Eber, that like every scene seems to be very crafted to make a certain thing happen. The end's a little strange because you're like, I mean, mm-hmm. it's a good ending, but it's in a weird, it's a weird, weird setting. Yeah. Know, like in this weird Texan party and weird dancer up front. And and then cutting back and forth, back to Yeager breaking some other sound barrier. Well, yeah. Is he breaking a barrier or is he he's, just trying to go higher than normal? I think the highest anyone's ever flown. Flown uh, a plane. Flown a plane, yeah. Okay, he's 
trying to break the limits in some new way. But it, it really is a movie where it just kind of takes you on this, like all the new things, like all the tests they had to do, all the new situation. Like everything was constantly like, how do we make this up? You know, how do we keep moving forward? And then how do we deal with it as people are both celebrities, but we haven't done much yet? Yeah, it was very interesting to see the examination of how this was a big media circus from the very beginning, mm-hmm. essentially. Like, I mean, on one hand, it, it was important to make sure that the Soviet Union didn't have a military stranglehold over space. But as much as it was important from a defense position, it was also, from the very beginning, a very important PR stunt. I wonder how the press... What does the press have to say about it? What does they have to say about it? Do you boys know what makes this bird go up? Funding makes this bird go up. That's right. No bucks... No Buck Rogers. And uh, press over there. They all want to see Buck Rogers. And that's us. Buck Rogers. You see, those fellas over there, they've been making us out as the seven finest and bravest pilots in all America. And if a story were to come out in the press that we were not being allowed to fly as pilots, we won a window. It's an interesting movie, too, because it really focuses much more on both the people... And the, it's almost all on the backside of the space program. Mm. Like it's not the front, you don't get any, you don't really get any of the politics except how it interacts with their lives, you know? Yeah, yeah. You almost get none of the, even from people watching The Rocket, you know, you don't get much like the common person watching them on TV or anything. There's no scenes of that. It's just mm. them on the ground, warts and all, doing their jobs. And it's a pretty compelling and different sort of way to present what nowadays we would probably lionize a little more. We would probably what? Lionize, like idolize. Like, oh, idolize. Okay. I almost tried to use hagiography, but I wanted to do that. <laughs> Interesting. You think we would idolize? Because it seems to me like like this is in some ways maybe the beginning of an era. And I, again, I don't know the context between Comparatus to other movies. I mean, I guess if you have Lawrence of Arabia from before that, it's kind of shedding some doubt on whether he was a great person I, or I not. I mean, more about space, like... At least currently, it seems like our presentation, every time you hear about moon landing and stuff now, it's always like this great thing that humanity achieved. Like that's okay, the. I see what you mean. That era of history is now looked back on very fondly as when we all came together and did this great thing. Yeah. But it's not presented like that yet. Mm. It's presented like we need to do this thing. Uh-huh. And are you the right people to do it? Well, see, that's that's interesting. The uh, critique I saw leveled against the Right Stuff TV show okay. was that they painted the astronauts a little bit more a little bit even uglier than this movie oh interesting and some people thought that's not that's not accurate and i'm not sure the astronauts were thrilled with even what this movie did i guess some of them called it animal house in space (laughs) (laughs) because they you know there's certain scenes where they look kind of like immature frat boys Mm -hmm. so it raises some interesting questions about like it definitely helps us feel this certain way about how about who these men were, about whether they had the right stuff. And I guess the idea being that Chuck Yeager is kind of part of this legacy of men who just had the right stuff. Who just like, they, they'll go and throw themselves into the unknown. Mm. Yeah. But it does feel a little bit more down to earth, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Then, yes, certainly what we would see at our museums about these yes. about, about these guys. And I don't think it's, I mean, I don't know what, how accurate it is, but I don't think they... I think they showed them as flawed, but I didn't think they tried to make them look like horrible people. I don't think so either. I, I, they no. look like normal complicated people yeah yeah that's a good way of putting it i'd say i mean it's one of those things i think the people who are in it have a little bit more 
protectiveness against. Yeah. You know, and I know, this could lead to something very unfortunate. It's ticking you off. I'm talking about the playing around that's going on. I'm talking about the young girls. I'm talking about the cookies. I'm talking about keeping our pants zipped and our wicks dry around here. Mr. Glenn, you are way out of line. I'd advise you not to try to foist your view of morality on anybody else in this group. Each man here has volunteered to do a job. Each man here is devoting long hours of training to prepare for it. And doing many things above and beyond the strict call of duty, such as morale tours of factories. Such as bringing girls up to your room in the middle of the night. And foregoing any semblance of an orderly family life. And Mr. Glenn, as long as a man uses good sense, what he does with his zipper or his wick is his own business. Again, I don't know how accurate, but that's, that's another question. Yeah, that's a whole different thing. But anyways, historically, it's just fascinating as a story, it's fascinating, all the ins and outs, the different people that interact with them, how their wives interact. It's just, they show a lot of different angles. Yeah. And the wives was an interesting angle. I think that's, I think they had pulled that from the book a, a bit. Well, apparently Time Magazine had endless articles with these people, the wives. Mm, yeah. You, you get the perspective of, they're living in constant fear, like when they're on the base. You know, the government spends just all kinds of time and money teaching you pilots how to be fearless, but... They don't spend a penny teaching you how to be the fearless wife of a test pilot. The movie opens with a government person coming to tell a wife that her husband is dead. Yeah. And so the shadow of that kind of looms over. And that guy kind of looms over all the yeah. different things, which is a really effective film technique, I think. Yeah, they, they give him a distinctive look. And so that whenever you see him, he's like, oh, he's the, and, you know, there's times when he's like, Worried, looking at the the astronauts, like, oh my, I'm gonna have to go tell your wives that you died. Yeah. You know, sort of. So yeah, it's kind of a looming figure of death. Yes. Another thing that we want to touch on real quick: the way they depicted air and space flights mm-hmm. with the tools that they had in, here in the 1980s. Interesting, like what they were able to accomplish, but also some of the limitations that they mm-hmm. had there. Certainly, they used some models. Interesting, the mo- models that when they would show things of like what the Earth would look like. And you have the a model of a capsule floating yep. past the Earth. Just interesting techniques there, but also a lot of the space flight, I would notice there's only a certain number of shots that they yeah. would have to work with, basically. You could see some like weird light flying by that would be like his viewpoint looking out the, his little window. Mm-hmm. And then you have extreme close-ups of the astronaut's face, whoever yeah. was in the capsule at any whichever flight. Yeah, you could tell that they were doing a really good job for what they had, but in modern filmmaking, you would have had a lot more freedom yeah and i think like apollo 13 from my memory of it you got a lot more varied shots of outside the spacecraft that they probably did in cg and other things but also the airplane flight stuff that we saw like breaking mach 1 and it was very frenetic and very interesting it occurred to me after the fact that this was in some ways an early more acceptable use of chaos cinema yeah we've talked on our other podcast your old trains of thought about what chaos cinema was and it's not as much of a I feel like filmmakers have gotten away from it more than we were afraid it was going to be a trend about 10 years ago with a lot of the camera moving all over the place. Very chaotic camera movement. Very chaotic camera movement. Hard to figure out where you're at in time and space. But when you're talking about how to simulate flying at faster than the speed of sound and trying to learn how to do that, and that makes perfect sense for for this sort of thing. And between that and using considering that they use a lot of actual real footage of the spaceships flying yeah. from actual stock footage that they had. I can totally see why this won an Oscar for, for best editing because yeah. it would have been 
uh, enormous task to make all these things line up and feel fluid, especially when, again, you're not working with computers here. You're manually cutting the film to do all this. And it's, it's pretty seamless. Yeah. yeah. So you I never just, feel like it's fake. Yeah. So I got I to gotta give kudos to the editing, which we don't talk about a lot about editing on this uh, show so far. So yeah. And it's hard sometimes because it's visual. Yeah. And we're not. And it's true. This is an <laughs> audio format. Yeah. Aircraft taxiing on ramp. Did you file a flight plan? Yeah, I'm just taking her up to ring her out here a little bit. Any objections? Hey, it's Jagger. No, sir, no objections. You are clear to text. He must have clearance, right? Yeah, sure, he must. It's here someplace. Tim, will you go ahead and start with one of our questions? We talked a little bit about historical accuracy, and we talked about that also when it came to Lawrence of Arabia last season. Yes. When I was reading some of the details, it bothered me a little bit more here, some of the, the changes than it did with Lawrence, because of, again, the way they discuss Gus Grisham and mm -hmm. how the astronauts really didn't like that. Should that make a bigger difference? And if so, why, why or why not? <sighs> make a bigger difference for what? For whether we like a movie or whether you even do it? Well, I guess... Maybe this is more of a question for me than I sh and I should have talked about this in the other section. I don't know because my my wondering is: Does it make a difference that Lawrence was about a single character from a situation that not a lot of people know about? This is a movie about astronauts, a story that we've has been told and retold in our in our history books yeah. for a while. Is it more of a slander that they portrayed one person in a not so great light? If a lot of people there don't think that it wasn't true. You know, I, this is off the cuff answering. I would say, yes, I would agree with you. I think for this reason, I think the right stuff is very explicitly trying to tell a historical story about multiple people that we can check. Lord's Arabia is trying to tell a historical story, but it's also, it's also telling the way it's filmed. It's like, it's also just, it's also kind of a fiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, the movie itself seems to seem much more like this. It's this big scale. It seems much more of inspired by, even in its setup. Okay. At least to me. Yeah. Um, and and right stuff is portrays itself as being like, and this is what happened. Uh huh. And I think when you portray yourself as this is what happened, you have a more strict. Well, did it really? Mm hmm. I think that's where it might come down. I don't know if that's fair if we think about it more, but that's where it come down right now. Yeah, that makes sense. The expectations for what sort of story you're presenting mm -hmm. might make the difference there. And maybe I only think that because I, again, don't know Lawrence Arabia as much, and it is about one guy and you can kind of... Yeah. It does seem like it's bigger than life in some ways, and this is trying to be, like, gritty mm -hmm. in a certain extent. So you feel like, well, if it's gritty, it's being real. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so what's your, what's your next well, it was question, kind of first question for me? Well, let's go on and ask the question, since uh, the screenwriter wasn't sure. Would you have changed uh, Yeager's involvement in this plot? Okay, so he's a test pilot, I wanted to remind you, that kind of starts the story, and he's kind of the book in at the end. Yeah. So what do you think? I, I'm glad you asked me this, because this is the the other question I was thinking about throwing at you. Yeah, it's a hard... It's a, it, I'm uncertain about it, because... In some ways, I can see why the screenwriter wanted to eliminate it, because it, you would have streamlined the story to be more specifically about the astronauts rather than this guy who broke the sound barrier. Mm -hmm. I also get the idea why the director wanted it, because the idea being that Yeager is the the foundation for pilots who, who have the right stuff. Yeah. He's kind of... There's a scene toward the end where one of the astronauts gets asked, who's the best pilot you ever saw? 
you get the hint that he's about to mention Yeager, but for some reason he doesn't in the last second. Yeah. He reverts to back to his kind of swaggering. He's like, oh, you're looking at him, you know, because he has this kind of half cocky, half self-effacing So, way so it would him. be good to keep him in there, but not have him in so much, you think? Or do you like you just say, the movie is what it is, and let's just keep it as it is? I don't know. I mean, it is tricky. Yeager, at some point, there's a scene later on where he he's not... Dis- I don't think the director is as disparaging towards the astronauts as the screenwriter thought that the director was. There is a scene kind of in the middle of the movie where Yeager says something about like, hey, what those astronauts are doing, you know, they're basically volunteering for a potentially lethal mission. Yeah. That's not, you know, that's, those are good guys. Mm-hmm. I'm, I imagine the Yeager is a focus, is from the book. I imagine that's why uh, this is, a, yeah. that, that's why they made this connection. So now what was your question? I, like, would you have trimmed down his oh. involvement in the movie? I mean, I think, I think especially at the beginning, it's a necessary yeah, set up. the beginning, it doesn't feel awkward. It feels like in some ways I thought the beginning was going to set up more of what the movie was going to be. It became much more focused, narrowed in on the Mercury 7. I thought maybe it might be more the history of the whole space program. Yeah. But then once they got into the space race, it focused much more heavily on them. At that point, Eager felt like a weird tangent that yeah. they kept going back to. So I feel like if you're going to continue to include it, you'd actually have to include it more, even weirdly enough, if that might not be as historically accurate. Okay. Like make up a relationship between Yeager and the other astronauts so we'd have a reason to go back okay. to Yeager. Or if if not that, then just drop them all together. See, I could see like in the book coming back in was like as almost a footnote, like simultaneously this is going on, but it's like a paragraph or two. But it seems like the book, I mean, the movie at the end, then like, Took a good chunk of time. Yeah. It's like they wanted, he wanted to give Yeager the climax, even though the, that the was what the weird space. part, I think. Yeah. yeah. The, like, I like the plot line. I think it's good setup and whatever, but yeah, he seemed like at the end, he's eats too much of the running conclusion. time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess the tricky thing is how would you do a climax if probably the most other interesting climactic moment would have been John Glenn's whole thing up flight. there in the with the fireflies, which is, we didn't even talk about the weird, uh, Aborigine Australian thing. But. Yeah, that's that was just pure silliness. Yeah, <laughs> so that yeah. was a very silly part of it. But yeah, right, we won't me, touch on that now. Okay, you guys, silly question for me. So during the training part, we see the astronauts hanging out at this bar in Florida <laughs> that that has a, a giant aquarium with women swimming in yeah, it. Yeah, just apparently they're hired just to swim there. Just yeah. hired to swim there. That raises a lot of odd questions about this bar. But we said, when we were watching it, we said it looked like a James Bond opening. Moonraker, no. Um, or Spy Hard. Spy Hard, yeah. <laughs> yes. So, if you were to make your own restaurant inspired by a James Bond opening, what would it look like? Ooh. Um, <laughs> I'm not super in with my James Bond opening, but I feel like... I need to be on drugs. No, um. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, some of them. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I think everyone just needs to walk around in cool suits. Um, No, I don't know. I don't, uh, that's a hard one because honestly, this bar, it kind of captures it better than anything else. (laughs) James Bond opening, not your forte. eh? No, apparently not. Um, Okay. okay. I'll, I'll tweak the so question then. Me. Yes. So if you're doing the same bar, but you, you weren't you weren't quite certain you you were comfortable with the um with the swimming women yeah. thing. Yeah. What would you put in the tank instead? Polar bears. <laughs> okay. No, because I was at the I was at the uh, Toledo Zoo. They have these polar. And they're, you know, they fight with each other. They swim around. It'd be really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be a great bar. I can see that. So yeah. so Dharma themed, in other words. Well, I hadn't gone that far, but yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> okay. Yeah, we'll go with that. All right. What, what um, else you got for me? I'm not completely sure I've thought this one through, but I just thought this would be an interesting, you talk about Spy Hard, 
an interesting sort of style to like do a mockumentary versus a documentary on. Ooh. Like in style, like this is Spinal Tap or, you know, very serious, but not serious. Uh-huh. So what would that look like for astronauts, for the Mercury 7? And like, what would you call it? What would we, what would we kind of exaggerate? The first thing that comes to mind, rather than it being about the actual space program, make it about space camp with, <laughs> with kids. <laughs> So no, I was at Space Camp. That's great. Make all the kids treat it super seriously, and maybe even the adults treat it super and seriously. They have cool nicknames and stuff. But too. like, whenever the kids are like doing one of the like test things, every single one of them just pukes afterwards. Okay, okay. okay. I love this. So it's just like super. It's like the Mercury Seven, but they're like tiny. They're like fifth graders. Uh-huh. Nice. Okay. And and the like. Have you ever seen that movie where they actually go to like these kids go to space? Like they accidentally get in space. It's like a it's, no. a, it's an eighties movie, I believe. Well, I, I think it's called, it. it might be called Space Camp. Actually, you're not talking about Flight of the Navigator. No, are you? no. Wait, wait, just a second here, just a second. Yeah, okay, okay. Here we go, Tim. So you just invented a movie that's already been filmed. Really? Space Camp, nineteen eighty six. Andy is- Burstrong, an astronaut eagerly waiting her first trip to space, runs a summer camp for teenagers w- with her NASA employed husband Zach. One night during an engine test, Andy and her four teenage campers are accidentally shot into space. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've seen this movie. Okay, but is it a mockumentary? No, it's just a fun Disney. It's just a fun. Okay, no, but you can make that mockumentary. I just thought. Yeah. So uh, film history that I knew something about you did. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Okay, cool. Good. That's an obscure. But one. I think I think a mockumentary like that would be fabulous. Like Office style, they're talking and they're like uh-huh. just trying to like survive space camp. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the thing is, they all have to take it super seriously, except so, for maybe like your one character who's your gym or whatever. The writer stuff. <laughs> the writer stuff. The writer stuff. Well, no, that sounds confusing. You think about be about uh, authors. The bestest stuff. <laughs> there you go. All right, Tim. Well, time to get into the heart of the issue. Did we like this movie? I did. Space movies are not the sort of thing I normally really go for. I think because my brain just sees that as like, oh, science movie. Next. <laughs> but but at the same time, whenever I do watch a movie like this or Apollo 13, I do come away with a deeper appreciation for the hard work and courage that it takes to do what astronauts do. So I wouldn't probably would never have watched this movie on my own if I didn't have a podcast to watch it for. Um, but I'm very glad I did. I, I enjoyed it. I'm, on the other hand, a sucker for space movies. Um, <laughs> I remember my brother watched like the entire Earth to the Moon miniseries back that like Tom Hanks made way back when. And okay. space was just like, it's ama- it's crazy we got up there. Like it makes no sense. <laughs> um, but I did like it. Like it's done differently than what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. And, but I thought, I thought it was enjoyable. Yes. Yeah, despite some of the questions I have about if the structure is just yeah. right, it's definitely told in a very compelling way. The actors do a great job. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, no, it was definitely some funny worth... scenes, some, some serious scenes. It's, mm-hmm. it, yeah, just it, it's always something new. Yes. Yeah. So would we recommend to anyone or just to select audiences? I can't think of too many people I would have a hesitation about recommending it to if they're interested in the topic. And honestly, it's an important part of American history. It's very patriotic thing <laughs> to watch, I feel like. So, and, yeah, and, sure. And it does seem to have a, a pretty important place in, I mean, it's very high acclaim, well acclaimed. Yes. And is it, I don't see why you wouldn't enjoy it. Yeah, I, I go with that too. Yes, recommended. All right. That is the end of episode 19. Indeed. The right stuff. Subscribe to us on your various podcatchers. Feel free to listen to our other podcast, Derailed Trains of Thought, 
Tune in next time for 1993. Where we will discuss Sleepless in Seattle. Which is not a space movie. Not a space <laughs> movie. We're talking, this season we wound up having a lot of eclectic, not the the mainstream movies that people think of, like iconic Hollywood stuff. But this is one that a lot more of you should be familiar with, and yet I have not seen. Yes, I have once upon a time. It's been quite a while. Cool. All right. So until next time, this is Nick. And this is Tim. Adios. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.